Hello, I'm David Sanborn, and welcome to As We Speak. My guest this week needs no introduction. It's Sonny Rollins. Sonny is the subject of a recent comprehensive biography by Aidan Levy. It's called Saxophone Colossus. And just like the book, we'll speak with Sonny about his influences, his process, and his life at large. Sonny! Hey, Dave, how you doing there, man? Good, good. I'm so, I'm so pleased and happy to, to, to talk to you. I mean, I, uh, I'll try not to bore you with, with too many, uh, you know, worshipful fan questions and, and comments, but it's going to be hard to resist that. Well, how you been, man? My brother, my brother. It's good, man. I haven't seen you in so long, man, but, uh, I've been hearing good things about you every now and then. I see you appearing someplace, and, uh, man, that's yeah. wonderful that you're still playing and uh, carrying on your quest yeah. for uh, love and beauty and all the good things. Yeah, well, it is a quest, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's really a process, that what we do. I mean, it's, it's a, and it's spiritual. Absolutely. One of the things I learned from you is that jazz is really the art of the now, and practicing is a spiritual and physical exercise to to free the okay. mind and the body. And I I just that I learned that from you, you know. So wow. Okay. I'm really struck by the the sense of process and the sense of of uh, that you know that that life and music. It's a process, and that you never get to the end of it. I mean, you know, the path becomes the thing itself that's meaningful. It's not the goal. It's it's the, you know, you're always reaching for something. And I think to me, that's what's come across to you in your music a lot. I hear this. There's always this probing sense, of, <laughs> you know. Well, that's good. No, this is a very spiritual stuff you're saying here, but. Uh... I agree that there's no end to our quest. No, no, no doubt about it. That's that goes on past this life. You know, it goes on to the uh, next lives and the next lives and the next lives. It goes on forever. Mm. Yes. So I think it's no. It's a beautiful thing to realize that to know that. Oh man, gee, uh, this is it. Here, I'm just kind of play and I got to do it. No, 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 man. You're here for, you're here forever, man. We yeah. are here forever. You know, there's no getting out of this, man. We've got to get it right. And if we don't do it in this life, then we have to do it in the next life. But That's we'll right. get it right. That's why we're here. That's right. And I think in the process of working it out for ourselves, we be, we could become a, a power of example to other people because I mean to, music is a great metaphor for life in, in one sense in one way of looking at it it's it's understanding how to live with joy and dedication and humility and possibility right it's great it's great I'm so happy that 
Of course, I wanted to play when I first heard Fats Walla a long time ago, when I was about one years old, something like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm so happy that I uh, was able to uh, use music as my profession in life. Of course, now, as you know, David, I can't blow my horn anymore, so it, it uh, freaks me out for a while. Until I realized, well, look, I've, I've had a life playing music, and uh, that's it. I have to be grateful for that instead of uh, feeling sorry that I can't do it anymore. And uh, so, you know, things are okay on that end. On that end of life, I've gotten over that and, uh, you know, just trying to goes through the rest of life that we have to live and learn, you know. I think that one one of the things that struck me was when, uh, at least in the book, it, when you were talking about, you know, growing up in, in, in Harlem at that time in the, you know, 30s and, and, and 40s, you know, the the atmosphere that was that was present there with, you know, all this... Uh, uh, the social activism as well as cultural, uh, like a concentration of great, not only great musicians, but great thinkers like, you know, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and uh, oh, yeah. La no, Langston sure. Hughes. And these are people that were, you know, who are now legendary, but who, these are people who you saw and were around and interacted with uh, in, in Harlem oh, that's at, right. at that time. It's, no, that's right. I was very fortunate uh, to be around uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and all the other, you know. It was a great place at that time. It was a lot of uh, depressed areas so far as housing and all that, but that doesn't really have anything to do with it. You know, I, I we didn't have any money coming up, but I never... Myself, I never, or my sister, or my brother, we never, I know, I never wanted for anything, you know? And uh, so the material things just really disappears when, you know, when they come down to real reality. That foundation, it seems, uh, what you're saying is that foundation was such a, a strong foundation and in many ways the the money and the material things were almost uh not secondary that, that's not a good very word very much secondary yeah. very secondary one thing i i remember uh an anecdote from the book about you uh getting uh having a, a picture of coleman hawkins and 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 waiting around uh, close to where he lived so you could get his autograph when you were like oh yeah, ten, yeah. ten or eleven years old, and uh, that the fact that Coleman Hawkins, that solo on Body and Soul, which was really him, oh, man. just playing the changes, what a right? Solo. What a solo! It was like a textbook, right? Oh man, that solo is. It's just like that's the holy grail, man. I'm telling you, that. I mean, that's yeah. the, that's the greatest. You know, I mean, I hate to put things in terms of greatest, no, but yeah, that solo awakened 
so many guys. There was nobody playing like that before he did that. There was nobody able to play like that. A lot of these guys tried, were playing body and soul, uh, uh, but, you know, Colin Hawkins did it like, it. I mean, he, oh, man, that, that, that's what's always, you know, it, it's, it's a treasure, man. It's just so great. And, and I, you know, so Coleman Hawks was living not far uh, from me up in uh, a few blocks. So I found out that he usually came home about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, around that time. So I went up to his... Uh, Apartment building, nice, nice building, nice street, in fact. So I asked the doorman, I said, well, you know, I wanted uh, Mr. Hawkins to sign this thing for me, this photo. Is it okay if I wait here on the door? So he said, sure, sure. So I waited there until uh, it was around 5 o'clock, and... Here came this big Cadillac driving up and uh, came out and came up to the stupid asked him, you know, Mr. Hawkins, can I have your autograph? And uh, that was great, man. He signed it for me. I'm sure sure he uh, got a kick out of it, but I mean, he didn't react in any way like that. You know, he just he was a very circumspect person. Uh, so he, you know, he he just said, oh, you sure? And signed it for me. And uh, I was a happy camper. <laughs> no, and the one thing good about where I lived in that area uh, David was that we got a chance to see all of these musicians that we admired. We got a chance to see them living and you know going to the store, or coming out, go you know because we would hang around out there. A bunch of guys who liked jazz and everything, so we would see guys like Cy Oliver. Yeah, and Big Sid Catlett and John Kirby and all these, you know, just lived up there. So we'd see them just in the area, in the neighborhood, you know. And these were the, these great. were the guys that were practicing the art at that time. So, and to see them deal with their daily lives, I would imagine, right, became a very strong, powerful example. It did indeed, quite. Did you ever meet Louis Jordan? <laughs> well, I hate to say that I never met Louis Jordan. Mm. But I I wanted to all my life. I'll tell you, you know, one time I was flying in Chicago. This was when I was working. I forgot how come I was getting through with the job in Chicago. And and Louis Jordan was flying at McKee's. So sure, McKee's now the loud. thing is this. Yeah, around 63rd. It was actually around 65th Street, but it was, yeah, right yeah. off of 63rd. 
Cottage Grove. Right. Cottage yeah. Grove. There you go. Yeah. That, that I, I, I played there. I played there with Sonny Stitt. Oh, yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. You know where yeah. it is. It's yeah. yeah. Great, a great area, man. It was so great to yeah. play around there. There were so many guys playing around there. And so let's say I came in one night late from someplace about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was living someplace around anyway. So I was walking down Kai's uh, Grove, and I got to 63rd Street, and I made a right to go up 63rd to go to where I was living at, and there was a club there right on the corner. And uh, you could look in the club. You know, they had the windows. You could look right in and see right. who right. was playing. And so I came, and I looked in the window, man, and there was Prez standing up there wow. playing, man. It wasn't too many people around. It was just, just it was just like a a biblical <laughs> sight, you know. Yeah, yeah. He was in there playing, man, and with the, with the, it wasn't too many. It was almost four or five o'clock. You know, so it wasn't like the middle of the evening when people were out there. No, it was anybody around there. I think it was hardly anybody in the club. But there was Lester Young up there playing, man. I'm telling you, I'll never forget that image or the or the effect it had on me seeing him, you know. <laughs> I had to tell you that story, but yeah. now I'll tell you a quick story on Louis Jordan. So naturally, Louis Jordan was my main man. I mean, I got all his records that came out, and and any place Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan was playing at, he was in a movie, uh, and I went to see. Anyway, Louis Jordan was my main man. So anyway... I was right in this club there on Connors Grove, and Louis Jordan was playing there. But I had checked out of my hotel, and I had my car. I was going out to the airport, and I had my car there with all my horn and my stuff. So I said, man, I wish I could just stop by the door and run right in. But I knew that that would be taking a chance, because the neighborhood wasn't that pristine, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I couldn't do it, man. So I was close to getting a chance <laughs> to meet Louis Jordan, but uh, that's about as close as I got. You were in the car out in front of the club. Out in the front of the club. Well, that's closer than I ever got. <laughs> But oh, I, remember, man. I remember all those great, uh, the song and the, the, he would make those short videos of, I guess they were like jukebox videos of like. Oh, yeah, I remember those, sure. You Beware, Brother Beware. And, sure. Uh, five Guys Named Mo. Five Guys Named Mo. And he was such a, I mean, he, he was such a concise player. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he played with him. You know, impeccable intonation and style, and and 
every all of the good things you can yeah. say about his playing, but it was a very specific path that he chose for himself, which was, you know, I mean, clearly he thought of himself as an entertainer and not in a not in the negative way of of necessarily uh you know compromising his integrity it was no, just no i don't think so is he, I, 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 in his case the integrity it, was there mm-hmm. yes and I, I think that was clear in the way he carried himself and the way just the whole the the, the way the 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 rhythm of the moment you know uh um I, I I would walk away from the, li- listening to him, not on the records, but I think seeing him on the videos was a real inspiration to me because I could see that he was. Those guys were serious about the music. I mean, they oh, they man. they played. You know, they played with the the visuals and somewhat, but they were serious about the music, and they Absolutely. were tight. They were so tight, you know, and and um, that was such. A, anyway, I, I he was. He was such a, a personal hero of mine that I just wanted to, you know, kind of ask you about that. And another guy yeah. is, is Don Bias, who had this great, oh, that yeah, great Don, How High the Moon. <laughs> How High the Moon, Don which is Bias. Wow. unbelievable. Everything this guy played, that's another guy that I tried to get every record that he was on. Yeah, yeah. And I especially... got a story about Don Bias. A short story, let me... You no, know, Archie Shep was living in Europe, and Don Bias was living in Europe, so they were hanging out a lot, and uh, Don Bias was asking Archie Shep, well, you know, who's who's playing in New York now? You know, what's going on, and who's the guy? So Archie Shep would play different records of different guys, you know. So yeah. anyway, uh, Don Bias liked me, which was, boy, what a, what an honor. But yes. anyway, so when I first came to Holland to play, uh, I didn't know that Don Bias knew me. I mean, you know, I knew him, of course, and, and he was, I knew he was living in, in, in uh, Holland. Anyway, so... We came up to the uh, Concertica Bowl band. Uh, the band came up, you know, on the bus, and we had to go in. And we came to town. We had to go in and and do a sound check and everything, and be around a little while and play. So okay, okay. So we got off the bus, and okay, there's a Concertica Bowl, and you know, just go there. You go. So here. I saw this guy, and him, you know, standing uh, on the steps of the considerable. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know who it, who it was or anything. But anyway, I uh, got out of the bus, you know, and I said, "Okay, the guy said, you go up that way." So I went up the steps going to uh, the dressing room and all that. And uh, I said, hey, Sonny. So I said, oh, and it was Don Bias. Wow. So Don Bias was waiting for me. Wow. And boy, 
I said, oh, man, don't mind. It's okay. So we went down to my dressing room, and we played all the way until uh, the time for the show. Fortunately, I was young and strong because that that usually would have worn me out. <laughs> but, you know, so uh, we'd stay here, and he would stay there until I had to do the show. But that's how I met Don Bias. Wow. But, boy, Don Bias. Mm, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and then when you, you, you know, you started to, to to come into your own and and uh, I mean I'm I'm jumping around in the chronology a little bit but you know some of the people that you grew up with like Jackie McLean I think was Walter Bishop was was he around there at that same time yeah and, yeah Walter yeah. Bishop Jr. yeah and so these are some of the guys that that you used to hang out with uh, and and did, you started playing with them at at that time right I mean you're your entry into playing was with your peers, correct? Yeah, there used to be. Uh, well, you know, Kenny drew the pianist. Yeah, mm, sure. Yeah, he was, he was in in one of our little groups there, and then uh, Andy Kirk Jr., who was a great saxophonist. Sure, Andy Kirk. Sure, Andy Kirk. Andy Jr. Kirk Jr. And then his, uh, you know, he got messed up with drugs. And that was yeah. the end of him, but he would have been a very formidable player. Yeah. But he just didn't uh, can handle that drug scene, which was really rampant around that time. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it really, in addition to just the human toll, the spiritual toll that it took, it just took oh, so many man. lives. It took so many lives, oh, and it's, man. it's, it's, uh, it's it's always hard to look back. I mean, because I think we've all gone through it. I certainly have, and I, I know you have, and it's just sometimes. Oh, I didn't it's... know you had gone through it. Oh yourself. yeah, yeah, a good solid twenty years. And, oh uh, man, I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> oh yeah, and I think you know I look back on that period of my life. It's like oh, you know, I mean, I have to you have to accept it, but I, it's hard to avoid the conclusion. What a waste. I mean, the fact that we, that we all survived that is is exactly is is a testament both to just the our ability to survive, and and I think really the it's not you know it's not my time to go yet. I'm there's a, there's an inner strength, whether it's a spiritual pull or you know your karma or or whatever it is that pulls you through those periods. You know, I know that like when you were. Sometimes when you were playing with Miles, you know, some of the records that you made, you were, was during this period. And, and I think in spite of all of the, the hardships and travails, that some good music came out of it. And, you know, I, I, I think, and you've spoken this at length about the fact that sometimes people would hold up Charlie Parker as an example of like, well, he, Bird did drugs, so if I do drugs, I'll... I'll play like yeah, Bird. That's one or... of the reasons I got started, man, because yeah. of Bird. Yeah. Your interactions with Bird were like, because he was like, what, 10 years older than you, right? So he, he had been on this. I think probably so, yeah. I yeah. Think probably so. He was already playing and active on the scene when you started to, to really come on the scene. Oh, uh, sure. Right? I was a young. Yeah. You a were young like guy. a. Year... 
well, I was I was around. Let's see, I, I was a, been around my early teens. I must yeah, have been around fifteen, something like that. And and Bird was there, and I mean, and uh, you know, the the gravitational pull of his talent was. I mean, I mean, even now we look back on it, but it's hard to imagine the impact that it, that he had at the time when 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 what he was playing was new. Oh man, he he was he was a you know when the one I first there's you know Bud Johnson the tenor player. Sure, sure. Okay, well Bud heard me playing someplace that because Bud, Bud would hang hang out with some time at these places. So Bud said, hey man, I'm gonna take take you to to meet Bird. I want you to play for Bird. So I said, okay. Because there's one thing about me, I'm not afraid of doing stuff like that. You know, <laughs> playing for him. If he liked it, okay, then okay. Yeah. You know, if he, or playing with those guys. And as a young guy, they wanted, if I was supposed to be there, I'd be there. They didn't want me there. So I was never uh, reticent. Anyway, mm -hmm. so he took me around, I think it was at Charlie Ponte's store on 5th, 48th Street. Sure. So uh, Bird was back in the back there trying out some horns. So Bud Johnson took me back there and said, Hey, Bird, look, man, I went to the head of young, young guy play, you know. So, okay, he took out my horn there and, and I played it, you know, a couple of things. And Bird said, hey, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Oh, man. But anyway, so that's, uh, but... And because he, but you know what, David, the thing about Bird was this, having everybody want to play like him is what killed him. That's the worst thing he wanted. He didn't want to see these young be, uh, guys using drugs like he did. I found that out. And when I found that out, I realized, look, Sonny, you better get off of that stuff because you're killing your f***ing idol. Yes, yes. And that's when I, that's when I got off of drugs. Because I would never have gotten off of drugs, man. I I enjoyed uh, using smack and and yeah. playing. So you know, I said, I mean, I, I was a rough person to be around. I didn't. But yeah. then I find out that that was killing bird. Yeah, that was killing him, man. And when I saw that, I said, oh, man, I'm going to stop. And that's what enabled him, um, me to stop. It took me a, it took me a while. About a half a year, I went to Lexington. You know, in Lexington? Sure, sure. Yeah, and, uh, and then uh, came out and, you know, so on and so forth. But it was all for Bird. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know it's not just the the physical damage of drugs; it's the like you said, the psychic damage, the 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 spiritual psychic damage of drugs that that pull you into this this kind of pool of negativity that 
is negativity, which is the polar opposite of what music and jazz is, which is about joy exactly. and freedom. And and drugs are all about like being, you know, captured and and no freedom and no joy. I mean, they're you know the, right. the appeal of drugs is undeniable. I mean, it was. I mean, got to be honest. It's you know it. The, the feelings that it evoked were pleasurable, but they were feelings of separation and, and internal and not engaging with the world and not engaging with the, the process. And, and But boy, it's a hard one to cut loose. And, it's hard you know, to come loose. Yeah. It's hard to get away from it. Yeah. And then, because, I mean, you know, on in the, in the material world, you know, living the life of a jazz musician is a struggle just to exist in, you know, especially <laughs> not in, not, not, not less, less in my time than in yours. But I mean, the hardship of being on the road and it's just a kind of monotony and, and it's hard not to want to seek solace in, in oh, something man. that's kind of, kind of relieve that, that pain and, and to, you know, in a certain sense, you think it's going to help reconnect you to, you know, your muse or whatever you choose to call it, you know. Be sure to join us on the next episode as I continue my conversation with Sonny Rollins. This has been As We Speak, a podcast from WBGO Studios. This episode was produced by Trevor Smith, Billy Robinson is our executive producer, and the president and CEO of WBGO is Stephen A. Williams. I'm David Sanborn. <laughs>